Welcome to chapter one, part one of our text. So we're going to begin with a discussion of students and teachers today. You are going to go into a classroom that is very different from the one you remember. Even if you are a traditional college student, fresh out of high school, when you begin to teach in two or three years, your students will have access to technology that you didn't. They've had access to that technology longer than you did, and they've been impacted by global events like COVID in a different way than you have. Education moves quickly. Your students are also going to be from diverse backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses. If you're going to teach in Escambia County, you are more than likely going to teach at a Title I school, which means that over 50% of the students enrolled qualify for free or reduced lunch. So in other words, almost every school in this county serves a population of students that is overwhelmingly living below the poverty line. Many of our students are immigrants. Many come from non-traditional homes. Many will not have spoken English from birth or maybe at all. Many will have learning differences and physical differences. There will be students with whom you completely identify and others that come from a background that is the polar opposite of yours. And you're going to have the opportunity to love and teach each and every one of them. And how will you know that you're teaching them effectively? Let's start first with what the government says. Most of us have probably heard of the No Child Left Behind Act, or NCLB, which was passed during George W. Bush's presidency. This act was supposed to raise the bar, so to speak, on the education system in the United States. They used standardized testing metrics to determine high and low performing schools. They graded these schools using letter grades, and they rewarded the high-performing schools and punished the low-performing schools. So that wasn't bound to backfire, right? Well, as it turns out, schools are funded in most areas of the U.S. through property taxes, meaning that the schools get a cut of the property taxes from all homes in the district and state. So this leads to some pretty vast inequalities because some areas simply have higher-priced homes than others. Often the state and federal governments attempt to rectify this discrepancy, but most states can't afford to level the playing field completely. You throw in neighborhood and family support and wealthier areas, and we've got a situation where poor schools are working with fewer resources and then getting penalized when their students are who are already at a disadvantage don't show the same performance as students at wealthier schools. I'm including an additional audio for this week. It's an NPR article from 2016 that details some of these issues with school funding. It's about six minutes long, and I highly recommend you either listen to the article or read it at the link in the module. After a decade or so of realizing NCLB wasn't going to work, the Obama administration introduced the Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA. ESSA is a marginally better but still flawed attempt to quantify school performance. The biggest improvement was that instead of taking money away from failing schools, ESSA pumped money into those facilities and required states to plan interventions, hoping to again rectify the damage done by NCLB. Warrington Middle School in Pensacola is one such school that is in the midst of those interventions right now. Another supplemental reading in the module is a USA Today article summarizing some key differences between NCLB and ESSA. The big takeaway is that ESSA is currently the law of the land, and it does two main things differently than NCLB. One, it gives states more autonomy in evaluating schools and determining interventions, and two, it looks more holistically at the assessment data with more focus on progress or differences from year to year versus uh, achievement. So that's student school evaluation. What about teacher evaluation specifically? What metrics do we use to evaluate how well teachers are teaching? The text goes over a few assessments or instruments, but we're only going to talk about one in depth because the other two don't really matter for our purposes. In Escambia County, and I believe most of Florida, we use the Framework for Teaching Evaluation Instrument written by Charlotte Danielson, which has 22 competencies for effective teachers in four domains. So that's planning and preparation, classroom environment, instruction, and professional responsibilities. I actually don't mind the Danielson. It's a fairly clear rubric, and in the module you can look at the whole text if you'd like. It goes into great detail about each competency and gives examples of how to excel at them. For example, domain one is planning and preparation. Competency 1E is designing coherent instruction. So one of the ways to be rated distinguished or the highest in this category is to provide activities that permit student choice. The framework gives an example that the teacher's unit on ecosystems lists a variety of challenging activities in a menu. 
The students choose those that suit their approach to learning. Uh, you can read specific examples of how to meet each level of mastery on the rubric. When you do your field experiences in student teaching or whatever the equivalent is for your program, you'll be rated using the Danielson and you have to score higher than a needs improvement in all areas to graduate with your teaching certification. Uh, the School of Education also uses an instrument called the in-task dispositions, which was developed by an interstate consortium to address nationwide teacher standards. Each of their standards is divided into, the, into three areas, performances, essential knowledge, and dispositions. The faculty of the School of Ed have pulled critical dispositions from each standard, and there are specific dispositions you must score meets expectations on, which is the highest level of proficiency in order to graduate. And you'll learn more about the Danielson and the dispositions in other courses, but it doesn't hurt to look over what instruments will be used for evaluation down the road. So that's an overview of how schools and educators are evaluated from the outside. But what about how we view ourselves? Is that important? Drumroll. Yes, it is. In fact, teacher sense of efficacy is, according to Wolf Oak, the author of our text, one of the only personal characteristics of teachers that can impact student performance. And what is our sense of efficacy? It is a teacher's belief that they can reach even the most difficult students and help them learn. And teachers who believe they can be good teachers end up becoming good teachers. They're less likely to burn out and more likely to persist in tough situations. But does having an effective teacher really impact student learning that much? Drumroll, yes, it does. The impact of having a good teacher is cumulative and residual. So students with good teachers year after year continue to benefit and students who do not have good teachers year after year continue to decline. To quote the author of the textbook, better teaching in a later grade could partially make up for less effective teaching in earlier grades, but could not erase all the deficits traced to poor teachers. I highly recommend taking a careful look at the section in chapter one titled, Do Teachers Make a Difference? The author shares some really interesting studies about the impact of good teachers. So that's it for part one. A quick overview of what we talked about. Your future students will be diverse from various backgrounds and experiences. Laws like NCLB and ESSA attempt to measure school performance, but they are by no means perfect. Danielson Framework and Intest Dispositions are used to evaluate teachers, focusing on planning, classroom environment, instruction, and professional conduct. Teacher self-efficacy, the belief in one's ability to teach students, is crucial for teacher success. And effective teachers have a lasting positive impact on student learning, while poor teachers' impact persists negatively. That's it for part one, and I will see you again for part two.